From University of Utah Health and Scope Radio, this is Pioneering the Future, stories of discovery and innovation. I'm Kyle Wheeler. I have two guests today in Drs. Rachel Hess and Adam Bress. Rachel Hess, MD, is the director of the Health Systems and Innovation Research Program at University of Utah and is also a professor of internal medicine and population health sciences. She is board certified in internal medicine. Adam Bress, PhD, is trained as a cardiovascular clinical pharmacist. He is an associate professor of population health sciences with tenure in the Division of Health System Innovation and Research. He's also an investigator at the VA Salt Lake City Healthcare System. And with that, here is my conversation with Dr. Hess and Dr. Bress. To move into our subject matter, this month we're talking about better health for populations in pioneering the future. And I want to maybe talk about this as a, a general concept before we get into some research that the two of you have been involved in. And so I, I think the, the first kind of thing that I want to address is oftentimes when it comes to research within the health sciences, we have this notion of bench to bedside. However, as I've talked to some researchers, there's there they note that that doesn't necessarily capture the full range of work and discoveries that could have impact on health. And so I suppose the question that I want to uh, start with is, is how does trying to solve population level health issues differ from other areas of, uh, of health science research? Yeah, thanks, Kyle. Um, you're, you're really absolutely right. I mean, we've talked a lot about bench to bedside in biomedical science. But then we kind of stop and we don't think about those next steps of getting from bedside to population. Um, so how do we go from what we would call efficacy, which is that at the bedside step of knowing something that works and it works well in, in a super selected population to effectiveness or seeing if it works at scale in a more diverse group of people or that population and so when we're thinking about population health and population health kinds of research, we're asking that question. Okay, you figured out that it worked in this very controlled environment. Now we need to start to understand how we transition into a less controlled environment and, you know, how we, we sort of get into um, those techniques like modeling population effects like doing some controlled studies to get the evidence into the real world, as well as designing studies to, to understand how we best get that evidence from bedside into population. So it's, it's a different arm of the science translation, but it's really moving from knowing something works to getting it to the people for whom it can help be helpful. I really like that as a way of putting it, 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 you know, kind of in a summary of, of knowing that something works and, and moving towards actually getting it to the people that need, uh, whether it's an intervention or, or, or a therapeutic or something. I think a, another question that's, that maybe pops into my mind a little bit with all of this is when it comes to population health, how might a researcher identify a problem that needs solving or, or even an already accepted norm that might be worthy of, of additional scrutiny? Yeah, I, I think there are, there are many approaches. One way 
that we've thought about it is is looking for either highly prevalent conditions or conditions that have large disparities in outcomes across groups such as region, race, ethnicity, or gender. And that can help, you know, design or target implementation or dissemination strategies or effectiveness studies to determine if the intervention or policy that that may have been shown to be effective in a in a kind of highly controlled environment would scale or would um, have the same effect in in a broader population. So in, in the work that we do in hypertension, which is a, a highly prevalent condition, even interventions that have small effect sizes actually can have really big effects at the population level if that effect size is achieved in the, in the full population. And can I build on that a little bit, Kyle? Certainly. Yeah, I think that that as as Adam really points out, um, those modeling techniques are super important to sort of discuss how broader reach can be achieved. Um, and other things that I think we think about in population health is also kind of moving the data to the point of care and making sure that the provider knows about it at the time when they're seeing the patient. Um, a lot of things kind of die on the vine because we don't have physicians and other clinicians thinking about them or knowing about them when they're seeing the patient in front of them. And that's, that's, that's very, very important. And without both the knowledge generation to understand what a population-based intervention could do, as well as understanding how those decisions bubble up into clinical care, we kind of get stuck. And some of Dr. Bress's other work does look at those changes in terms of when recommendations change, how and when do providers start to make changes in their practice patterns, which is, is really interesting as well. That That is fascinating. I, I had a recent discussion with Dr. Adam Gordon here at the University of Utah, who's interested in, in implementation science, and he specifically works with, with addiction. And, and he talks about that being a, a major problem where we can discover an intervention or a therapeutic that might be ultra effective, but that there is a barrier between knowing that and, and actually making sure that people have access or are in a positioned to utilize those interventions, um, which is an interesting branch of science that, that I find very important in this process. I think, though, that one other thing that, um, that you brought up with that is the concept of de-implementation. And we know that, that getting the right things into people's hands is hard, but sometimes getting the wrong things out of their hands is also hard. And we've seen that in, in situations where, as we've learned about some of the harms of antibiotics, decreasing antibiotics is challenging. Mm. But in the area of hypertension, as Dr. Brest has taken new guidelines from sort of the best practices that we've learned, which antihypertensive drugs may be better for patients to help prevent not only high blood pressure, but also heart disease and stroke, we wanted to switch providers' practices as to which medication they use first. And I think Dr. Bress has really shown quite nicely that 
those changes from the old one that you learned about a few years ago being first line to what our modern science has told us from more bedside translation might be a better first line are really hard to change as well. So it's not only getting the right thing in there, but it's getting the wrong thing out of there. That That's a fascinating problem to, to have to solve in terms of, you know, I mean, I, I think a lot of times, especially if we're focused on health science research, there's, there's, you know, maybe some of the pomp and circumstance around discovery, but the there is this whole complicated process in terms of making sure that people have the best healthcare available based off of the knowledge that we have. Let's maybe move forward with this conversation just a little bit. And I think another question that maybe I want to pose in, in this area of, of looking at population, make better health for populations as, as a whole, is could, could one of you talk about how discoveries and research can have an impact outside of just the development of, of a therapeutic. Maybe that's already been addressed in some of this conversation. But Dr. Brest, do you maybe have some some additional thoughts about how that might be something something that we can look at when we're looking at improving the health of populations? Yeah, I, I think one of the first things that comes to mind, which I think is an excellent example to answer your question, um, is the community and ethnic group specific interventions uh, tested in the barber. Uh, trials. And the Barber trials essentially tested what is the effect of placing a clinical pharmacist in black barbershops, which is a trusted community uh, pillar in the, in the black community on blood pressure control rates. And the, the context of the trial was, although we have safe, effective, and inexpensive antihypertensive medications, control rates of blood pressure are much lower in black Americans compared to white Americans. And the hypothesis was, is if you reduce the clinical inertia and went to the patients where they are and where they interact with the community, with trusted community members, is that an effective intervention to um, increase blood pressure control rates? So this, this wasn't a new therapeutic or a new drug or anything fancy. And what they found in the trial was that blood pressure control rates among the barber shops that were randomized to have the pharmacist in the barber shop measuring blood pressure and initiating and titrating medications for high blood pressure, they found a five-fold increase in blood pressure control rates uh, six months wow. later. So I think this is an excellent example of taking what we know that works, but also appreciating the context that our diverse country lives in by rurality, race, ethnicity, um, and other aspects of, of, of socioeconomics and culture, and how we can take known effective interventions and make them more effective by designing interventions specific to the community and what their needs are. That, that is a remarkable example. Thank you for sharing that. I think that that's, that is an incredible example of, of, what that implementation might look like and, and and improving the health of a population. I think one last question I have in, in sort of a general sense, and maybe this will be answered a little bit more as we talk about the work that the two of you have done in terms of blood pressure. But I'm curious if if one of the two of you could talk a little bit about the journey of making some kind of discovery and then turning it into a practice or a policy or a tool that that does have 
an impact outside of simply just having a better understanding of, of how a disease or how health works. Yeah, Kyle, I think that's what Dr. Hess and I aspire to do is, is kind of span that whole spectrum is to generate knowledge, but also have it result in an impact, you know, uh, lives changed, outcomes reduced, people living healthier and happier lives. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we have today is how do we compress that that cycle from discovery to impact. And one of the areas that, that I've been working in a little bit with hypertension is uh, developing clinical decision support tools for providers to help them make better decisions about how to treat high blood pressure. You know, there's a huge literature on clinical decision support, and it's not a panacea, but it is it is one area in which you can generate information, provide recommendations for providers to make it make to reduce the friction or make it easier for them to make the be, the best decision at the point of care, appreciating the challenges that providers have to practice in today, whether it comes to having to see a lot of patients uh, quickly. So that that's one thing that comes to my mind is, is building tools to help patients and providers make better decisions about treatments. I think another area to bring up here is also bringing tools directly into patients' hands. And other members of our group definitely do that work where we, particularly in the area of smoking cessation, which is another very strong cardiovascular risk factor, and taking the idea that different people have different triggers, and we've known this, and we've previously tried to say, you know, when you see your trigger, react, understand, avoid it, things like that, but mm -hmm. have actually used smartphones and geocoding to understand where people are when they smoke, and then oh. send them real-time messages to say, okay, you're getting to one of those places that might be challenging for you. Remember your techniques. And so finding new ways to get that knowledge into people's hands, whether it's through decision support, as Dr. Russell was talking about, whether it's directly to the patient through technology, as some of our other colleagues are doing, whether I think, as Dr. Russ mentioned before, it's just actually bringing the intervention to the place where the person is and using the entire community where they spend 99% of their lives instead of the 15 minutes twice a year that they may sit in their physician or other provider's office. I, I like that you bring up that example and especially like maybe even using a mobile app because it, it, it strikes me as... When it comes to trying to deliver better health outcomes to the population, it, it is a place that is ripe for innovation uh, and innovative thinking in order to help people in a broad sense have better health outcomes. Let's, let's move into talking a little bit about the work that the two of you have been involved in. I know that there's a host of people that have been involved in, in this work here at the University of Utah and at other institutions in terms of assessing and enhancing blood pressure proto, uh, control protocols. I think before we dive into that, because you, you know we're, we do try to have some level of appeal to a broader population, I think it might be useful for us to define some terms and 
maybe allow that to set up this discussion a little bit more fully. Would one of the two of you be willing to to talk about what blood pressure is and what kind of a marker of health it is? Yeah, sure. So here's the deal with blood pressure. High blood pressure is the leading modifiable risk factor for cardiovascular disease in the United States and worldwide. And what blood pressure is essentially is it's the pressure of the blood that is flowing through your arteries. And in terms of of marker of health, it is, like I mentioned, the leading modifiable risk factor for cardiovascular disease. It's estimated that if we could take everyone who has hypertension and make them not have hypertension, about 30 to 40% of all cardiovascular disease could be eliminated. Um, and, and to give wow. you a sense of how much treating and managing hypertension and complications cost is about 50 to $60 billion per year. So in summary, I mean, hyper preventing high blood pressure and treating high blood pressure is one of the public health best buys in terms of how, what problems should we prioritize resources for to improve population health. And I, I do a lot of work in quality of life, and sometimes I tend to break things down a little bit more simplistically. When we talk about cardiovascular disease, what we mean is things that really impact people. We mean heart attacks that make it less likely that you're going to be able to be fully active with your family. We mean strokes that may make it more difficult for you to communicate or interact with your loved ones, your children, your grandchildren. So high blood pressure itself isn't the problem necessarily. It's the things that come from it. And most people can't feel when they have high blood pressure, but they can certainly know after they've had that heart attack or stroke. And that's what we're trying to avoid people having when we talk about managing their high blood pressure. I think just to echo... Kyle, what Dr. Hess said is that is the big problem with hypertension is that usually there are no obvious symptoms. So uh, <laughs> many people don't know they have it for years and years. So getting back to population health interventions, one of which that would be very effective at improving population health is increasing screening so people know they have high blood pressure sooner. Because when it's left untreated, as Dr. Hess mentioned, it damages your heart, kidneys, eyes, brain, even sexual function. So and it directly causes those things because of the pressure, like I mentioned, in the arteries damaging the organs directly. Yeah. Okay. Th thanks for clarifying that. I think I think that's helpful for, for understanding more precisely what's going on with hypertension and, and how it's related to other areas of our health. Dr. Bress, you did uh, mention just kind of a dollar figure of, of how much hypertension has an impact on on our health care. Uh, I, I think maybe something else, and, and I'm not sure if the two of you might have a, a ballpark idea of this. Do you, do you have an idea of how many Americans deal with hypertension? Yeah. Yeah. So um, as it's currently defined, um, about 45% or 100 million uh, U.S. adults currently have hypertension. And the definition of that is uh, based on the two numbers. Um, that you'll get when you see your provider, a top number and a bottom number. And the current threshold to define hypertension is the top number or systolic blood pressure of 130 
or the bottom number, the diastolic blood pressure of uh, greater than 80. Um, and those are the thresholds that we currently use. And like I mentioned, about one in two people, U.S. adults age greater than 20, have hypertension. Um, so it's a huge population. And it's important to note, Kyle, that the threshold to define hypertension changed in 2017. Um, the American Heart Association, the American Card College of Cardiology lowered the threshold from 140 over 90 to 130 over 80. And the reason they did this is because there is very strong evidence from millions of people that the risk associated with higher blood pressure begins as low as 115 millimeter mercury. And we know now that every 10 points your systolic number is higher, um, your risk of cardiovascular disease goes up by about 20%. That's heart wow. attack, stroke. So it's it was those data also in conjunction with the SPRINT trial, which Rachel and I were fortunate to work on, which drove the guideline writing committee, which included nine professional societies, including geriatrics, to recommend a lower threshold for not only definition of hypertension, but the threshold, Kyle, for when patients should start medications and what level of blood pressure should those medications be intensified to. Thank you for going through those numbers. And I think that leads us in really nicely into talking about this this work that, as you mentioned, the two of you have been involved in. Would one of you be willing to talk about what the SPRINT trial was? And, you know, of course, you've, you've kind of mentioned that that did have an impact on what is recommended as defining high blood pressure or, or hypertension. Uh, Dr. Bress, would you be willing to to describe what the SPRINT trial was? Sure. So I have to take us back to around 2007 and 2008, which at the time, the definition uh, and treatment thresholds for hypertension were 140 over 90. And at that point, there wasn't good evidence available to suggest whether targeting a more intensive blood pressure threshold of 120 millimeters of mercury resulted in better health outcomes than targeting the traditional blood pressure threshold of 140 over 90. And the question was based on the fact that we knew that higher blood pressure, beginning as low as 115 millimeters of mercury, was associated with higher risk of adverse health outcomes. So on that backdrop, in 2008, um, the NHLBI and the NIH uh, funded a randomized trial of high-risk U.S. adults to be randomized to two different treatment strategies for hypertension. There was the standard treatment strategy, which intensified antihypertensive medications to a goal of less than 140 millimeters of mercury systolic, compared to targeting a more intensive strategy of less than 120 millimeters of mercury. This was done in 9,361 U.S. adults um, with good gender and race uh, representation. And what they found was that the group that was randomized to the more intensive blood pressure target, less than 120 millimeters of mercury, had a 25% reduction in the risk of cardiovascular disease and a 27% reduction in, in, in dying or all-cause mortality over about four years of follow-up. So in summary, what Sprint told us was that among high-risk adults, targeting a lower systolic blood pressure 
was better. It resulted in less cardiovascular disease, less deaths, and without an increase in overall treatment-related adverse effects. Those numbers are incredible in terms of what was found with the impact of changing that protocol. I, I think something I'm curious about is once you got through that trial, you know, what was, it, as you looked at that and, and maybe modeling this out, what kind of broad impact did you feel like could, could emerge from changing that protocol more broadly a- across the U.S.? So Dr. Hess and I partnered on a couple different projects, analyzing and estimating the population health impact of the SPRINT results. Um, and one of the first projects we did was we asked, well, how many U.S. adults uh, could be impacted by these p- potential new recommendations? And, and what, what we did was we, we took the um, inclusion and exclusion trial from SPRINT and applied it to a nationally representative data set of U.S. adults and found that about 17 million U.S. adults met the SPRINT eligibility criteria, meaning that they are the best candidates for changing their treatment target from the current paradigm of 140 to less than 120. And Dr. Hess and I also took this one step further and and linked those data with the National Death Index to estimate the real-world death rates among these participants. And what we found was, is if all SPRINT-eligible U.S. adults were treated and controlled to less than 120, we could expect to have prevented about 100,000 deaths per year. So, how what these data provide is they kind of provide the upper bound estimate is if we were able to muster the resources and prioritize identifying and treating all sprint eligible patients to the more intensive target, a substantial number of cardiovascular disease events and mortality could be prevented. I think that that builds up this compelling argument for for making a change there. And as you you mentioned earlier, there there has been a change in that protocol. Uh, clinically. Am I right in saying that? Uh, Yeah. That was as of 2017, correct? That's right, Kyle. So the 2017 guidelines um, were published about three years after the main results from Sprint were published, which was in September 2015. And we did another analysis of those guidelines. Um, The guidelines recommend treating to a systolic blood pressure of 130. And we also analyzed those thresholds and found, not surprisingly, that if we you know, compared to the older guidelines, which recommended either 140 over 90 or 150 over 90 as a treatment target, that a substantial number of cardiovascular disease events would would be prevented as well. So very much consistent with SPRINT and other uh, similar trials that, you know, tell us, you know, as, as providers that if tolerated, lower blood pressure results in, in a lower risk of having those debilitating conditions, like Dr. Hess mentioned, heart failure, stroke, and heart attack. Can I ask the two of you, I don't know if you had involvement directly in, in the change of that guideline. Um, if you did, or if you have an awareness of how that happened, could you comment on what that process maybe looked like and what challenges were a part of that process? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to take that one first. So I think the first thing that's worth mentioning is the chair of the steering committee of Sprint was also the chair of the writing committee for the guideline, Dr. Paul Welton. So that helped in terms of organizing and communicating and integrating the Sprint results 
into the new guideline. The one thing I will say regarding Sprint and the guideline is um, there have been several recent meta-analysis estimating the effect of lowering blood pressure with antihypertensive medication on cardiovascular disease. And the overall results from those meta-analysis are, are similar with or, and without Sprint. So the point there is that Sprint, it's not a singular trial that's changing the collective message of mm-hmm. the evidence. Sprint is an influential trial, but it's not to the degree to which where it significantly changes the collective message. So I think that's important to note. Okay. And I think that that's one of the reasons why the work of Sprint has been relatively well adopted within clinical care. Not perfectly, but faster than a lot of other findings have been. And then there has been a belief that the data are real, the data are solid, there are changes that we can make to broad populations. Sprint included, as, as Dr. Brest mentioned, not only younger people with high blood pressure, but also older and geriatric patients with high blood pressure. And that broad inclusion, as well as the strength of the results, the consistency with other study results together have made it one of the studies that in my career as a physician, I've seen as the most influential in changing our practice relatively quickly. I think that is such good news. And I love to see that when it comes to talking with research, health science researchers, you know, to see an end result like that. And obviously, there's there's always more work to be done. As we close out, I don't know if there's anything that, two, that the two of you have had come to mind that you'd like to share about making health better amongst our populations as kind of a parting thought. I'd sure like to provide you that space to, to share any additional thoughts as we close our discussion today. Thanks, Kyle. It was, um, yeah, I really I very much enjoyed it. I, I think my closing thought is around the importance and the challenges of of scaling up interventions at the population level and how important and critical implementation science and dissemination science and partnering with community members is to make sure that the interventions that have been shown to be effective in smaller or or highly controlled environments actually make their way to broader populations accounting for the different culture and makeup of our communities and the the diversity that there is. And I would just add on top of that, I think the importance of our partnerships with our colleagues in policy to make sure that our populations are able to avail themselves of these interventions, that they're able to get screened for high blood pressure, which is super easy, but also that they're able to access the medications that they need to control their high blood pressure. As Dr. Bress pointed out, the downstream consequences of high blood pressure in terms of cost are huge compared to the costs of screening and appropriately treating high blood pressure so that we can avoid those downstream costs. Phenomenal closing thoughts. Dr. Hess, Dr. Bress, thank you for joining today and thanks for all the work that you do. Thank you, Kyle, very much for having us. Thank you, Kyle. Thanks for joining us for Pioneering the Future, Stories of Discovery and Innovation at University of Utah Health. 
To find out more about the discoveries discussed today and many more important discoveries at the University of Utah, please visit discovery.med.utah.edu. Special thanks to Wes Sunquist, the genesis of this endeavor, to Julie Kiefer and Abby Rooney for production and supervision. Additional thanks to Drs. Hess and Bress for joining me today. Special thanks to the many other health sciences scholars involved in the research discussed today, including Alfred Chung, Srinivasan Bedu, Mark Supiano, Molly Conroy, and many more. <laughs>